Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. In today's feature report, Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sands covers global warming in Indiana, which details progress, or lack thereof, in regulating warming in Indiana. But first, today's environmental stories. Savic, a chemical manufacturing giant tied to one of the world's richest royal families, the one in Saudi Arabia, operates the Sabic Innovative Plastics Facility in Mount Vernon, Indiana. The plant spews toxic chemicals and greenhouse gases into the surrounding community. Between 2016 and 2020, the plant emitted an average of nearly 23,000 pounds of ethyl benzene each year. Ethyl benzene is used in the production of styrene, an ingredient in plastic. It can cause nose and throat irritation and damage to the inner ear. The International Agency for Research on Cancer defines it as a possible human carcinogen. The EPA cited the facility for corroded pipes and valves that leaked BPA, an endocrine disruptor, and phosgene developed as a nerve gas during World War I and now used as an ingredient in the manufacturing of pesticides and plastics. Sabic has multiple facilities in the U.S. Between 2016 and 2020, those facilities were among the top emitters of at least seven toxic substances documented by the government's toxic release inventory. Those substances include BPA and 1,3-butadine, a byproduct of plastic resin production that the International Agency for Research on Cancer has classified as a known human carcinogen. In the last decade, SABIC has paid over a million dollars in fines for violating EPA and Occupational Safety and Health Administration regulations for toxic releases from its plants in Selkirk, New York, Burkeville, Alabama, and Mount Vernon, Indiana. In a finale to a Supreme Court term that radically reshaped American law, the court throttled the U.S. government's power to act on the climate crisis but it could take many more lawsuits and possibly years to see whether the Environmental Protection Agency can find some leeway to regulate greenhouse gases from power plants. With its authority now limited by the court's ruling recently in West Virginia versus EPA, the agency could write new carbon regulations requiring technologies like carbon capture that would be far more expensive than the approach the court rejected or the new principles laid out by the court could go even further in eroding the power of the EPA and any federal agency to address climate change or any of society's biggest issues. One thing is certain, the delays caused by this ruling mean that it is now impossible to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. 
it makes a temperature rise of 3 to 5 degrees Celsius by 2100 very likely. The Cape Fear River Basin in North Carolina is aptly named. The residents live in fear of developing cancer because the area is massively contaminated with a family of 9,000 chemicals in the class per and polyfluoroalkali substances, or PFAS. PFAS are called forever chemicals because they don't degrade. Rather, they accumulate in the environment and human tissue. Cancer is one of the illnesses linked to PFAS exposure. That people's ill health is related to PFAS has not been proven. State and federal regulators haven't responded to residents' repeated requests for thorough studies. What is proven is that several industries in the basin have been using PFAS in their products for years, whereas two companies, DuPont and Chamour, have been actually manufacturing the chemicals at a plant in Fayetteville along the river. PSAS appear in thousands of products because they make them resist water, heat, and stains. PFAS contamination permeates the region. The chemicals are in the drinking water, air, and soil samples, crops, livestock, fish, and blood samples from residents. The basin is an important source for drinking water, agriculture, and recreation. Scientists say the 450,000 people who live in the basin plus the 200,000 annual visitors risk exposure to PFAS. Scientists estimate that Cape Fear residents are drinking water with stunning PFAS levels, greater than 100,000 parts per trillion, whereas 70 parts per trillion was the EPA's safe level in effect since 2016. The EPA recently lowered the safe level to one part per trillion. The U.S. is beginning to expand the scope of wind-generated power, in this case with offshore wind turbines. The only existing offshore towers are off Block Island, located at the eastern end of Long Island. Offshore wind power is common in Europe. The U.S. is holding its largest offshore wind sail yet off the coast of New York and New Jersey. The sail marks the first offshore renewable energy sail under the Biden administration and consisted of nearly half a million acres of the New York Bight between Long Island and New Jersey, the Independent reported. The lease sale generated a record $1.5 billion in bids, Reuters reported. That's more than the previous offshore wind auction record of $405 million set in 2018. It's also more than recent offshore oil and gas lease sales. For example, at a controversial sale for drilling rights in the Gulf of Mexico last year, fossil fuel companies paid $192 million. Developing offshore wind power is part of President Joe Biden's plan to decarbonize the U.S. electricity sector by 2035 in order to address the climate crisis. As part of this goal, the administration has pledged to install 30 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030, enough to power 10 million homes. The energy generated by the nearly 500,000 acres currently on offer would be enough to power almost 2 million homes, the administration said. The auction also includes stipulations to promote jobs in the U.S., according to The Independent. These include incentives for sourcing items like blades and turbines domestically, as well as agreements to make sure the new developments are built by unionized workers. 
A study by a unit of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has found glyphosate, the active ingredient in the weed killer Roundup and other products, in over 80% of urine samples taken from over 23,000 people in the U.S. Scientists called the findings disturbing and concerning. Fred Mills, the lead researcher in 2017 study of the subject, said there was, quote, an urgent need, end quote, for a comprehensive analysis of glyphosate's impact on human health in foods people usually eat. A 2019 examination of glyphosate and cancer found that exposure to the poisonous chemical increases the risk of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, a blood cancer. U.S. farmers spray over 200 million rounds of Roundup on their crops each year. It's the most widely used herbicide in history. Various common foods, including baby food, contain glyphosate residues. In children, the primary route of exposure is through their diets. Studies have shown that some so-called inert ingredients in Roundup enhance glyphosate's carcinogenic properties. According to the Solar Energy Industry Association, solar energy prices have fallen over 70% in the past decade. New solar installations have grown, but there is growing resistance in some communities because the panels are often placed on productive agricultural land. If solar is to become a major source of power in Indiana, solar fields might need to add to agriculture in some way, and that means focusing the land underneath the panels, which solar companies typically haven't given much thought to. A typical solar field suppresses weeds by covering the ground with gravel. Over the past few years, solar farm developers have increasingly been encouraged to transform the space underneath their solar panels into a safe haven for bees, butterflies, and other endangered pollinators. The benefits of pollinator friendliness don't stop at honey either. Establishing native prairie strips as buffers in corn and soybean fields helps the crops. Native plants help the soil lock in moisture and nutrients. A similar effect is likely possible with pollinator-friendly solar farms nestled among croplands. There are a few sites in Indiana now growing flowers in solar fields for pollinators. We have an update on a story we aired recently on a proposed amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that would have destroyed hundreds of thousands of acres of public land. Nevada's Green Basin, by giving them away to the U.S. Navy and private developers for bombing, mining, and industrialization. We are now pleased to report that the U.S. House of Representative Rules Committee has rebuffed the proposal said Patrick Donnelly, the Great Basin Director at the Center for Biological Diversity, quote, I'm so pleased this destructive threat to public lands has been stopped in its tracks. Nevada needs more birds, not more bombs, end quote. Twice during the last week, Texans were asked to cut back their energy use, including turning up the thermostats on their air conditioners during a scorching three-digit heat wave to avoid blackouts as the state's power grid operator struggled to satisfy a surging demand for electricity. On both occasions, officials claimed clean energy was a reason for the shortfall, prompting criticism from some energy experts who say the state is once again unfairly blaming renewables for its long-standing power problems. The Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, which operates the Lone Star State's power grid, urged residents and businesses to scale back their energy use on Monday and Wednesday, citing record high electric demand, 
and attributing its inability to meet those needs in part to renewables underperforming due to slow winds and cloudy skies. It was the third time this year that ERCOT has asked its customers to cut back on electricity to avoid a grid collapse. But some energy experts say the description ERCOT painted for the public in its report this week is misleading and that solar energy and battery storage, in particular, have played a major role in keeping air conditioning units running and the state's power grid afloat this summer. Quote, all through June, renewables performed particularly well, end quote, said Doug Lewin, an energy consultant and president of Stoic Energy based in Austin, Texas. Quote, and I just think this whole narrative that some are pushing that renewables are reducing the reliability of the grid is just not accurate, end quote. In fact, Lewin, who has worked on energy and climate issues in Texas for over 17 years, said wind and solar combined are now providing Texas upwards of 20% of its total electricity during times of peak demand. Texas, in fact, has more than 10 times more wind power than Indiana. Texas has a history of issues with its grid, and public scrutiny of those problems has only grown in recent years as extreme weather, made worse by climate change, has increasingly highlighted the state's vulnerabilities. In May, a blistering heat wave led to six power plant outages, and a massive winter storm in 2021 led to widespread blackouts across the state that contributed to about 250 deaths. Yet despite evidence showing the 2021 winter blackouts were caused largely by freezing gas pipelines and a general failure of the state's natural gas systems, ERCOT officials blamed wind energy for the incident, an argument state Republicans, including Governor Greg Abbott, have continued to echo. Quote, unfortunately, there's this sort of effort to try to make renewables look worse than they are, end quote, said Lewin. Texas is a state known for its relationship with the oil industry, producing the largest portion of the nation's crude oil, roughly 22%, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. With this in mind, there is a clear incentive for the state to avoid full transparency on not only the faults of oil and natural gas, but also on the fact that the state is increasingly reliant on renewable energy. July 16th marked the 77th anniversary of the Trinity atomic bomb test in New Mexico, and New Mexicans, led by the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, commemorated it with a town hall and candlelight vigil in Tularosa. The event memorialized those who died of cancer resulting from exposure to the radioactive fallout from the explosion. The explosion produced more heat than the sun and caused radioactive ash to fall for days, covering and contaminating crops, homes, bodies, and water supplies. The residents of the area were left to deal with the consequences of being exposed to the fallout. The families have suffered from cancer, other radiation-related illnesses, and early deaths. The people of New Mexico have been waiting all this time to be acknowledged as the original downwinders, the first people to be exposed to an atomic bomb and nuclear fallout any place in the world because of the Trinity test of 1945. They have been casualties of the U.S. government's ongoing quest for nuclear superiority. According to Tina Cordova, co-founder of the consortium, quote, there is so much more history than what the U.S. government has been willing to share, and we were the human sacrifice, end quote. 
The U.S. Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, recently extended for two years, has never acknowledged, let alone compensated, those the Trinity test affected. The Downwinders Consortium centers the impacted communities in ongoing struggles to enact and implement policies that attend to the widespread impacts and forms of radiation exposure. July 16th was a day to show solidarity with those who have lost their lives and continue to suffer the effects of the Trinity test. In today's feature report, Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sainz covers global warming in Indiana, which details progress, or lack thereof, in regulating warming in Indiana. The state is 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit warmer on average than 1895, and temperatures are expected to rise about 5 degrees more by mid-century. The increased heat raises the likelihood of heat-related illnesses like heat exhaustion and heat stroke, negatively impacts air quality, extends allergy season, and creates more favorable conditions for some pests and invasive species. The heat is also projected to cause an increase in cooling demand, which will spur more fossil fuel combustion. Climate change has also led to Indiana experiencing 5.6 inches more precipitation per year on average than it did in 1895. The precipitation is falling in shorter, more intense periods, leading to extreme swings between periods of increased flood risk, which requires expensive mitigation efforts to prevent, and long periods without rain. In Indianapolis, National Weather Service records indicated the city experienced above-average precipitation levels between February and March of this year, but the city then experienced a dip in precipitation in May and June. In May, only about 4.8% of the state was rated as being abnormally dry, but by June, that number grew to 88%, and about 10% of the state was experiencing a moderate drought. The city experienced the eighth driest June on record and the driest June since 2012, the driest June the city has ever experienced. The EPA collects information on greenhouse gas emissions through its Greenhouse Gas Reporting Program, but does not directly regulate how much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are emitted by all power plants. So now we're back to where we started. The Obama administration attempted to enact an EPA rule in 2015 called the Clean Power Plan that would, among other things, regulate the amount of carbon dioxide emitted by plants. The plan was seen as a threat to the coal industry and the Republican attorneys general from several coal-dependent states, including former Indiana Attorney General Greg Zeller, sued to stop its implementation. The Supreme Court issued a stay preventing the rule from taking effect and the rule was left in legal limbo as the next administration came to power. The coal-friendly Trump administration, in concert with the coal industry, weakened existing rules affecting power plants and set the foundation for the Supreme Court's 2022 ruling. Both of Trump's EPA administrators had direct ties to the fossil fuel industry. Scott Pruitt was a former Oklahoma attorney general that took in hundreds of thousands of dollars in fossil fuel industry contributions. Andrew Wheeler, who took over after Pruitt resigned, was a coal industry lobbyist. The administration targeted plans it sought to limit power plant emissions by using tactics like interpreting cost-benefit analyses in a way that would allow companies to claim the plans are too expensive to implement, raising the bar on emissions targets, and repealing or withdrawing regulations whenever possible. The Trump administration introduced its own emissions control plan, the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, which delegated authority over greenhouse gas emissions reductions to states. Under the plan, a state could choose to have little, if any, regulation on greenhouse gas emissions. The final version of a rule also included a full repeal of the Obama Clean Power Plan. This is former EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler announcing the ACE rule finalization in 2019. The Affordable Clean Energy Rule, ACE, 
give states the regulatory certainty they need to continue to reduce emissions and provide affordable and reliable energy for all Americans. Unlike the CPP, the ACE rule adheres to the four corners of the Clean Air Act. EPA sets the best system of emission reductions and then states set the standards of performance. This is how the Clean Air Act says the process should work. It sounds nice, but by the EPA's own account, the ACE rule would result in more premature deaths and tens of thousands more instances of cardiovascular and respiratory illnesses every year by 2030. During his presidency, Donald Trump managed to establish what would become a lasting environmental legacy through his Supreme Court picks. Associate Justice Neil Gorsuch is a skeptic of modern administrative law whose mother, Ann Gorsuch Buford, served as the first female EPA administrator until she resigned after being investigated for mismanaging the Superfund program. Associate Justice Brett Kavanaugh regularly sided with business interests in environmental cases and argued the EPA could not regulate greenhouse gas emissions because it would cost companies too much money. And Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who called the cause of climate change, quote, a very contentious matter of public debate, although 99.9% of all peer-reviewed scientific papers have found that climate change is mainly caused by human activity. The ACE rule was thrown out by a federal court on the final full day of the Trump administration. The Supreme Court in 2021 took the rare step of deciding to take up a review of the case, despite the Biden administration saying it would drop the ACE rule and the Clean Power Plan and write its own rule. ELPC senior attorney Scott Strand said the court should not have taken up the case. There is no rule for the court to review. The Clean Power Plan isn't in effect. The EPA is working on a new rule, um, and but it's not done yet. And they should have waited until that new rule was adapted. Um, the court came up, they said it's not moot. Um, and they used a doctrine called the voluntary cessation doctrine, which is the idea that when a, when a, a, a party that's been violating the law voluntarily ceases unlawful conduct, it won't moot a case unless there's an absolute assurance that that unlawful conduct won't repeat itself. And that's what the court cited. But what's been what's missing in the court's opinion is uh, several decades of law saying that exception doesn't apply to the government. ELPC Executive Director Howard Lerner said the ruling could allow regulated industries to sue to stop the implementation of rules they do not like by arguing that the regulation has a vast impact across the industry's economic sector. Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita, who was one of the 19 Republican Attorneys General to ask the Supreme Court to review the ACE rule decision, said the case was a fight for the people against the encroachment of our liberties. In an email, Rokita said, quote, Hoosiers and all Americans need cheaper energy and coal is crucial in making that happen. When families have less discretionary income, their liberties are impacted. The EPA's strict regulations they tried to impose on the nation would have crippled coal-fired plants, resulting in job loss and financial hardship for Indiana. Due to the Supreme Court's decision, this power will no longer be in the hands of federal agencies and executive orders. My office will continue to fight similar cases and prevent unauthorized power grabs by federal agencies to protect families and businesses across Indiana. The National Mining Association, the trade organization for the U.S. mining industry, including coal mining, said it was pleased with the court's decision. The Indiana Energy Association, which represents electric and other utilities in the state, said it was assessing the decision and future impacts to member companies. Environmental groups like ELPC, Earth Justice, and Sierra Club expressed their disappointment in the rule but urged the EPA to use its remaining power to tackle climate change wherever possible. Current EPA Administrator Michael Reagan said the EPA's primary responsibility is to protect human health 
and said the EPA would move forward with its mission to the full extent of the law. The agency recently told the Washington Post that a key part of its future plans will involve the further restriction of other pollutants that coal-burning power plants emit, such as soot, mercury, and nitrous oxides. Restrictions on those pollutants would also reduce greenhouse gas emissions. For EcoReport, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience in all ages are welcome and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. A Fossils at the Falls hike in McCormick's Creek State Park is scheduled for Friday, July 22nd at noon. Learn about the ancient origins of the park's landscape through a closer look of features unveiled by the forces of water. The hike meets at the Canyon Inn entrance. Join the Indiana Raptor Center for an exciting evening with some of Indiana's predatory birds at Brown County State Park on Saturday, July 23rd, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. See multiple live raptors, hear what threats they face, and learn about how you can help and appreciate these incredible animals. Seating is not provided, so bring your own chairs or blankets. Learn all about our marvelous mushrooms on a hike at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, July 24th from 11 a.m. to noon. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center front patio. On the hike on Trail 2, you will learn about mushrooms and why they are important. Find out which ones are poisonous and which ones are good to eat. Participate in a kayak recovery workshop on Sunday, July 24th from 1.30 to 4 p.m. at the Paintown Recreation Area at Monroe Lake. This workshop is for people who have basic kayaking skills but can't figure out how to get back in their kayak when they capsize. You will get wet and spend time in the water. Register at bit.ly slash kayak recovery dash jul24 dash 2022. Learn about the emerald ash borer menace at Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Thursday, July 28th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Meet at the campground to learn about the current status of the emerald ash borer here in Indiana and how you can help prevent the next invasive insect from gaining a foothold in our state. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Enrique Sands gave us the Indiana Environmental Report. Juliana Daly assembled the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. 
Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and auto-edited today's show. For WFHP, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.